So now we're going to look at the scriptures together, the Ten Commandments. We're calling it Finding Jesus and the Ten Commandments. We're almost done. We're in the Ninth Commandment. Next week, Stephen Watson is going to share the Tenth Commandment with us. I gave him the best one because I'm so generous. Uh, Coveting is a great one, so I'm looking forward to that and seeing what he does next week uh, with the Tenth Commandment. It is uh, a, it's, there's some beautiful things that Jesus built into the Ten Commandments there with the Tenth One. This week, we're on the Ninth One, and it's about truth. It's about truth-telling, about lying, so we're calling it Tell the truth. So our verse is Exodus 20, 16, and you can find that in those black Bibles in front of you on page 61. So if you want to open up the Bible, uh, we try to get people in the habit of opening it up. If you don't have one at home, you can take it. We've got extra ones in the closet, so you can just keep that Bible. If you don't have your own Bible at home, have something to read. So we'll read from Exodus 20, 16, and then later on in the sermon, we're going to look at Ephesians, some cross-references there. We'll be on page 997, so we'll flip towards the end of the Bible at that point. But we're starting here in Exodus 2016, and I just want to remind you of a classic story that most of us are familiar with about truth-telling. It's Pinocchio. Anybody seen the story Pinocchio or at least heard of it? A lot of you have. Uh, In the story Pinocchio, he's a puppet that is created by a puppet maker that wants him to be his child. This childless man wants a child, makes a puppet, and the magic in this puppet's life means that when he tells a lie, his nose grows, right? And so I know that makes you wonder if you can trust me, but that's just, that's magic that happens in the story, okay? So Pinocchio, his nose grows when he tells a lie. And what's fascinating in this story is you would think that the law, the law pointing out to Pinocchio that he's a liar would be enough to change his behavior, but it's not. It's not enough. And you see Pinocchio spiraling into brokenness throughout the story. It's actually a pretty scary as Disney cartoons go. It's a pretty intense story, right? He, he kind of spirals out of control. He goes to Pleasure Island. He becomes a donkey. I think they use the word donkey. Uh, I can't say the other word, but he, he just gets worse and worse, right? Um, and so it's a morality tale that shows us the importance of telling the truth, but it also is a morality tale that points us that we need something more than just the law to tell us we're broken, So we're going to start with the law, but as we've seen throughout this series, the law points out our sin and points out that we need a Savior. So spoiler alert, his name is Jesus, okay? But we'll get to that as we move on. Let's read Exodus 20.16. Exodus 20.16 says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear carry a false testimony about other people that you live with. This is starting really specifically in courtroom language. We don't want to build a society on lying. We want to build a society on truth. And so very specifically here, we've seen this again and again with the Ten Commandments. If you read it really narrowly, you might be able to say, I've never testified in court or I've never lied under oath in court and think, okay, I'm free. But the Old Testament and the New Testament teases this out to say it's more than just court testimony. We need to be people of truth generally as well. So let me pray for us. Pray that God would teach us this, uh, and we'll look at it in more depth. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, We recognize that just seeing that we're wrong is not enough to change, and so we pray that your Holy Spirit would meet us here and change our hearts. We trust that you're good and that you love us, and ask that you would convince us of that all over again, as we look at the scriptures together this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing I want us to think about is just starting with the narrow 
simple truth here. We're calling this the simple truth. So Exodus 20.16 says, you shall not bear false witness. It is courtroom language. And so the simple truth is, we got to build our society based on truth. I grabbed a picture here of a judge hitting a gavel to kind of get your mind in the courtroom world. Just a quick survey. Um, Any of you ever been in court for anything, right? Testimony, jury, any of that? Raise your hand. Okay, so a lot of you have been in an actual courtroom. I've been in a courtroom. Um, So that is the starting point. As I said, there's more to this, but that's the starting point. We've got to have a justice system. We've got to have a society built on truth. And I would argue that that is actually one of the strengths of our culture. We've talked before that every culture you analyze, they kind of have favorite commandments. We talked about how the commandment against sexual immorality is one that in our culture we kind of throw out, right? We don't really believe in that one anymore culturally. But I think truth is one we still kind of believe in. Does that mean we're perfect and we always tell the truth? No, definitely not. But we value it as a people. And so I want to say, man, that's a, that's a strength of our people. We want to honor that and say, man, that's led to a lot of stability and strength in our culture. We can give praise to God for that and say, man, look at this. When we obey commandments, things go well. And there's a, uh, there's a strength in our culture because of the rule of law and because of a high regard for truth-telling. Those of you that have traveled to other cultures, I've traveled to many other cultures, you can see that in other cultures, they don't value this one as much, or they might value other commandments, but not this one. Um, so we just want to give thanks to God that our forefathers set up a system that really emphasized truth. Man, we're glad for that. That's great. Um, now, again, that doesn't mean we're perfect, right? Uh, again and again, we see in the commandments that the commandments convict both the rebels, right, the people that have thrown out the law, but the commandments also convict those of us that have tried to live a good life. So even those of us that have tried to do right and tried to live a good life and tried to be good neighbors, we recognize we still fall far short of God's plan for us. None of us are perfect. And we see this pattern again and again in the Gospels where Jesus comes to the religious people and he says, you religious people are lying and saying that you're keeping all the commandments, but you're not really. You have hearts that are far from me. So we want to recognize the simple truth. Man, we need to build society based on truth. It's a blessing that our society has been built on truth for the most part, but we want to go farther, right? That's not enough. We need more than just that. So I would start off with saying, first of all, first application, don't lie in court, okay? That's an easy one. Just don't do it. It's not worth it. Secondly, the Bible teases this out to, really, we want to be people of truth in general. Don't be liars. Tell the truth. Thirdly, I would say, when are you tempted most to misrepresent the truth? So you could say, well, if I was in a courtroom and it was going to cost me a lot to tell the truth, then I might lie, right? So I might lie to save money. Some of you, it might be, I'm tempted to lie to save face, I want, I want to look good. Maybe someone really dear to you, you want them to be happy. You don't want to break their heart. Maybe you lie to keep from breaking someone's heart. So I, I would just ask you, there's probably a million other illustrations I could use. Where, where are the places where you're tempted to lie? What are the, the things, the circumstances that, that draw your heart towards lying? And now go back to this courtroom concept. And I would say, that is your courtroom. We're stuck in the courtroom of public image, or you're stuck in the courtroom of all that matters is money, or you're stuck in the courtroom of people-pleasing. And what the scripture draws our hearts to again and again is to recognize that there is an ultimate courtroom, 
The, the preaching in Acts says again and again that Jesus is coming back to judge us, which is interesting because that's not usually how we preach the gospel, right? When you read, though, in the book of Acts and see how the apostles preached, it wasn't uh, as much of an emphasis on God's love. That's there. It's in, in those sermons, but they always led with Jesus is the one who is certified by his resurrection to be the Lord of the universe, and he's going to judge us. So we've kind of got to start there, that there is one judge, and his judgment counts more than, than any other courtroom. So I'd say, where, where are you tempted to lie? And that's going to kind of reveal to us, that's, that's the courtroom of my heart. And I'm giving too much weight to that courtroom. There's a higher court. There's a supreme, supreme court of God himself. And Jesus is going to judge us. Now, the good news is, right, he's not just a judge, but he's also the one that, that stepped out of the judge's seat and gave his life for us. We're told he is the ultimate truth teller. He's the ultimate uh, one who did what was right all the time, the ultimate law keeper who lived the life that we didn't live, who took our place, right? So the good news of the gospel is that Jesus takes the judgment that we deserve. So we have to recognize that, yes, God calls us to tell the truth, but man, we need to dig a little deeper and say, why, why, then why am I not telling the truth? And that means we're, we're uh, heightening or exalting some other courtroom of life as more important than the courtroom of God himself. The New Testament continually uses this courtroom language, and it says that the courtroom that really matters is God. Jesus is the judge. And if you want to be justified, which is courtroom language, if you want to be judged not guilty, then you need Jesus. You need him. You need to come to him and recognize, hey, the truth is I've sinned. But the better truth is you've paid for my sin. If we're stuck in lying and covering up what we've done, we'll never find that forgiveness. 1 John 1, 8, 9, 10, it, it kind of talks about this concept that there's really two kinds of people. Um, you could argue that there's you know, 10 kinds of people, 20 kinds of people, but the Bible there in 1 John really reduces it down to just two kinds. There are those that admit their sin, and Jesus heals us, and there's those of us that lie about our sin. And there's, there's no healing for us if we keep lying about our sin. So I want to appeal to us to make sure we exalt the, the ultimate courtroom. It, it's Jesus. He knows everything, and we've got to throw ourselves on his mercy. Have you done that? Have you recognized, confessed, admitted the truth about your own sin and come to God for healing? That's the, the first step. The, the broader concept here, then, is important to look at, and this is where I want to switch over to Ephesians 4. There are some kind of broader understandings about truth-telling and how that affects our life. And so we've got the broader truth, and here are some ways I would summarize that. The broader truth is that lying equals being childish. Lying equals immaturity, and we want to grow up. We want to grow up. Paul calls us to grow up. The flip side of that is truth-telling equals freedom. As you tell the truth and you know the truth, the Bible says that's freedom. John 8, Jesus says, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The more we're listening to the wrong voices of our childhood, the lies of our childhood, the more we're in bondage, right? And the more it takes us back into that place and we're stuck. And the truth is God's love for you. And we need to be able to tell ourselves that truth. We need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves. So let's, let's look at Ephesians 4. I've got it up here, 14 through 19. And I think I mentioned this earlier. It can be found on page 997 in the Black Bibles that are under the chairs. Ephesians chapter 4. So the setup kind of before we get to verse 14 here, 
he was talking about how preachers and teachers and leaders in the church need to teach the truth, and that equips us as the broader church to be functional. So as long as we keep coming back to biblical truth and growing in truth, then we can mature. And this is where he picks up in verse 14. In verse 14, whoops, I haven't flipped over yet. All right, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. He says, So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. I took my daughter to the beach when she was two years old. Those waves tossed her to and fro. And as a grown man, I know I don't look very big, but I was big enough to hold her and keep her safe and sound as the waves were knocking her everywhere. She could take on my strength and have a security and be rooted in the ground and not be tossed away, tossed around by the waves. It's saying here that if we're living by untruths, we're tossed around like a baby in waves. He goes on uh, and gives more kind of descriptions of this. He says, verse 15, rather, the opposite, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So as we grow up, we become truth speakers. Not the like harsh fundamentalist, I'm going to tell you the truth, but really I'm self-righteous and I'm a jerk about it, right? Not that kind of truth teller. Speaking the truth in love. We speak the truth in care and love for people. We want the best for people. So this is maturity. So we don't just speak the truth to speak the truth, but we speak the truth in love, and then we grow up in every way into him who's the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, so an athlete, when you're healthy, you can run your race, properly. Everything is equipped, right? Your tendons and your ligaments and your muscles are in the right place and they're functioning properly. And then you can do your thing. Here he's saying, there's a body analogy here, that as the Christian church together grows up in truth and speaks the truth in love, then we can run our race. And the race here is the race of love, right? We are functional. Uh, Last year, I tore a ligament or I don't know if it's a tear or what what exactly it was that took place. I had to tape my ankle for a long time, so I've got a picture here uh, to kind of illustrate that taping your ankle. A lot of you have probably had an injury where you're used to being able to do normal things, and then you injure something, and then you go down. This is the analogy that Paul's using here because it's a common everyday thing that people understand, right? You pull a muscle, you tear a ligament, things don't function anymore. Uh, It was my son's senior year last year. It was the last father-son basketball game that I would probably ever play with him, and I went down. Bang! It was terrible. Made me so sad. I fell on some little kid, and my ankle rolled, and there was a loud snap, um, and so apparently like a ligament or a tendon or something ripped a hunk of bone off, right? Thank God it's, it's healed now, right? So now I can run again. Now I can walk again, but for a long time, I couldn't function, right? I had a boot for a while, and then I had to tape it for a while, um, and we've all gone through that. We've all gone through some kind of injury, maybe not an ankle. When you're injured, you're not functioning properly. Some of you, you struggle with chronic disease, right? And it's just, it wears on you because you know what it is to function properly. Or you see friends that can function in full health and you desire that. Well, that image here is applied to truth-telling, speaking the truth in love. As we know the truth and speak the truth, then we can do our event. Then we can run our race, and that race is loving and representing Jesus in the world. 
I'm going to continue to read here, verse 17. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So he's saying the Gentiles, the other nations, the people apart from Christ are just wandering in futility and they don't see where they're going, right? So this is like you in a hotel room when it's dark and you're bumping against the table and you're bumping against the couch because you can't see clearly because you don't know the truth. He says in verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So here Paul connects together something we don't often connect in our world. He connects heart and mind. He says, when you don't know the truth, your heart is not right. And I think it goes the other way as well. When your heart is not right, you're not really knowing the truth. So we need to be careful because as modern people, we tend to make a hard separation, say, There are facts, and then there is heart, and those are separate things, right? We kind of box everything up. The Bible always uh, ties all those things together. Mind and heart are overlapping, and they're connected, and what you believe affects how you feel, and what you feel affects how you believe. So we need to renew ourselves in the truth so that we feel rightly, and we need to practice trying to feel rightly, trying to praise what is good and grieve over what is bad so that we can know rightly, and those things feed each other in our lives. So he says there's this hardness of heart they have. In verse 19, they've become callous. They have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. So what he's saying is when we don't feel the right things and don't think the right things and we get callous, we get hardened in our heart and we start giving ourselves over to sensuality, we start trying to find our thrills in the here and now instead of trusting what Jesus tells us, that we can defer that pleasure and trust him and serve others instead of just serving ourselves all the time. So that's maturity in the Christian life, learning to give over more and more of yourself to him, understand what he says is true about the world, and walk with him. This is the process that we go through. So how do we do this? So, you know, going back to the sprained ankle analogy, how do we like tape up our ankles? How do we heal? How do we start functioning properly so that we can love each other by functioning in truth, by having all of our muscles and ligaments and everything tied together in the right way. I think it really centers around knowing the truth. And so I think a big application here is for us to be truth tellers, we need to be truth seekers. We need to be those who study this word and this story. And I think it's helpful to think about it as concentric circles of truth. And so we always come back to the gospel. Martin Luther used to say that it's like the principal, main, first, primary thing And we have to beat the gospel into our heads continually because we drift from it, right? So you might start with the gospel. I know I'm a sinner. I need Jesus to forgive me. Now I'm loved by him. I'm adopted into his family. But then you drift back to it and you say, oh, but if I taught more Sunday school classes or gave more money or if I was more righteous, then God would love me more. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is he loves you completely in Christ. Now go love other people because of that. But the gospel is your value to God is not based on your up and down days. Your value to God is based on what Jesus did for you. So we've got to start with that foundation of gospel truth. And then from there, we can have a deeper understanding of what this word is about. When you understand that primary reality of the gospel truth of a God who loves us in Christ, then this book starts to make sense. Because we've all had the experience of reading it and going, man, I I do not understand what that was about, right? Right? So we've got to have that gospel foundation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, this is what I've taught you as of first importance, this good news of Jesus. He died for you. He took your sins. He rose from the dead. That's the foundation. Do you know that? Have you given yourself over to that? 
you probably don't need to read the Bible on a daily basis and become a student of the Word unless you first know that. Once you know that, then you can be productive in learning and studying and knowing this Word. And then I would say next step is, yeah, start knowing it. Start reading it. Read it in story form, right? Take books by themselves and and read them in one sitting. Get a chronological Bible. Those are really helpful because it puts the Bible in order. The Bible is arranged like a library. So we've got history books together and prophecy books together and wisdom literature together. And sometimes that can be confusing to us because we're so distant in culture that it's kind of out of chronological order in a lot of places. So you can get a chronological Bible that puts that in order. We put out a Bible reading plan that connects Old Testament passages with New Testament passages. You can find those in the hallway if you'd like to read those. It's another way of kind of reading through the scriptures and connecting, okay, this is, Old Testament says this, and then the New Testament says this about the Old Testament. It helps you make more sense of it as, as one story about a saving God who came to us in Jesus. So I encourage you to read it in context. Read it as one story. It's 66 books, all these different authors, all these different times, all these different places, but it's one story about a God who loves us in Christ. So read it as one story. And then I would say a final application would be, well, this isn't the final one. I've got like three more. Uh, One more application is to study it at a micro level carefully. Become a careful student. But I think these things go in this order. Know the gospel first, then read it as a story second. Then you can begin becoming a careful student. And we try to make this the skeleton of most of our small groups where we do observation, interpretation, application, where we read five verses, 10 verses, and we say, what does this say? Who does it say it to? When was it written? What is it about? What's the main point, right? Just understanding it at a micro level. But sometimes you can do that, and if you don't know the big story, you're still kind of lost, right? So know the big story, read it as a story, then start studying it seriously. Then I would add on to that, memorize the scriptures. Don't just read it like a fortune cookie, flip through it randomly, study it seriously, but as you study it seriously, then memorize the scriptures that you now understand in context. Uh, You could write them on a sticky note and stick it in your car or at your coffee pot or put it on your bathroom mirror, right? There's different ways to do that that work better for different people. Say it to yourself. You can listen to it, uh, listen to the Bible on audio. We've got so many of these great ways to memorize and learn the scriptures. I say the more we grow in this understanding of scripture, the more we'll be like an athlete who is in shape and we can run our race, and our race is to love and serve others, to speak the truth in love. Are you, are you training? Are you training yourself? Are you taping up those ankles? Are you getting yourself in shape to love others because of what Jesus has done for you? And then my final application, this really is my final application for this one, that is as we study the scriptures, you'll have opportunities to teach other people. I know that's horrifying for some of you guys. I, I got to tell you, I've been preaching for 20 years now, and it was horrifying for me the first time someone suggested it. It was terrifying, but the more you learn, the more you can teach others. And it's a really a beautiful experience because then when you start teaching others, you learn more, which is really a lot of fun. So I think every Christian is called to at least teach your brother in the sense of, hey, man, this is what I read in the scriptures. This is what God is teaching me. So that kind of side-to-side sharing with a brother or a sister in Christ, with your spouse, with your friend, we're all called to that level of teaching. We want to move everybody to that place. But then a lot of you are going to then be able to teach our kids in the kids' ministry or teach a Bible class or lead a small group or teach in, in other maybe scarier ways, but God's going to use you as you grow in truth. So I want to just kind of give you that vision and say God's going to use you in that way. And then we're, we're functioning as a healthy body, paying attention to the truth, 
So again, the summary is lying equals immaturity. You're like a baby being tossed around on the waves. But knowing and loving the truth is maturity. And just an important summary piece here, you can't know facts without obeying them. That's not a biblical definition of knowledge. So as you know it, you have to start listening to it and obeying it and practicing it, trying it. Not perfect obedience. Again, we're accepted before God because of what he did for us, not because of our perfect obedience. But maturity means taking steps of obedience. You're going to step out in faith and you're going to say, God loves me so much. I'm so convinced of his love that I want to try what he says. Even though in the past, I didn't want to do what he says at all, right? In the past, I thought all of God's commandments made no sense, but now I see that he loves me, so I want to, I want to try what he says. I want to start obeying him. The last thing I want us to see is there's a central gospel truth that we need to just continue to get rooted in. I've mentioned this already, that that's the most important way to understand truth is starting with the gospel. And Ephesians carries on and shows us that it's not just a thing that helps you understand truth, but it's also something that shapes your self-identity. So Paul's going to use a lot of language in these following verses, verses 20 through 25, where he says, this is who you really are. We have competing voices that say, no, you're this, or no, you're that. We have voices from our childhood or voices from the culture that tell us who we're supposed to be. And you want to listen to the gospel voice that tells us who our true self is. Look at verse 20. He says, but that's not how you learned Christ, right? Stumbling around in the dark, indulging in immorality. That's not how you learned Christ. Verse 21, assuming you have heard about him, and you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So again, Paul's reinforcing. All truth flows out of who Jesus is. He's the central foundation to all truth. Verse 22, here's the process. You're taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for members one of another. So he gives us a process here. He says, and I would say daily, minute by minute, we're always constantly putting off the old self. We're saying, no, that's not who I am. I am who God says that I am. We're putting on the, the clothing. We're putting on the robe of Christ's righteousness. We're remembering all that we have as sons and daughters of the king. And that's a constant, ongoing process. You have to imagine yourself like taking off your grimy clothes and putting on your clean clothes, right? You ever been working out in the mud or out in the field or maybe you're just running and you come home and you're like, man, I got to get this stink off of me. I'm going to take a shower and I'm going to put on my fresh clothes. Uh, for those of you that are single, people really appreciate that if you do that. So I learned that early on. My wife loves it when I take baths. And so anyway, just something like um, I shouldn't have said single. I should have said men. Men are really the ones that need to learn that. Men, this is an important thing. Boys, it's a really important thing. We take off the old and we put on the new. Are you going through that process spiritually? So you understand it physically, right? I got to take off my stinky clothes. I got to put on my clean clothes. Do you understand that spiritually? Do you know who God sees you as? And are you putting on that uniform? Are you putting on that badge? daughter of the king, son of the king. Are you putting on that hat and saying, this is who I am. He loves me. Now he wants me to serve others in love. And so we have uh, this picture then at verse 25 of as we go through that process, we're putting away falsehood and we're speaking the truth with our neighbor because we're members one of another. 
And this is a really cool image that he uses. Members one of another, it uh, makes reference to Zechariah 8.16, which is a prophecy in the Old Testament that prophesies that someday God's people are actually going to be righteous and be nice and love each other and speak the truth, right? And so what's really cool is as we now as the church are a part of God's Old Testament prophecies, that someday there will be a people of God that actually love God and don't keep rebelling. So God's working that new people of God in us right now. We don't think it's complete, but he's doing that work to make this new people of God that express this truth to one another. I grabbed a picture here of a band for my birthday a couple of weeks ago. My family took me to hear uh, the University of Mary Hardin Baylor's jazz band. It was kind of a big band, about twice the size actually. Uh, But all of them playing together made beautiful music. They were speaking the truth to each other in what they were playing because they were on the same sheet of music. They were on the same key. They were in unison with one another. Have you ever heard a band where they couldn't play and they're playing different songs? It's it's pretty painful, right? It's a pretty horrible experience. But when we're united, it's a beautiful experience. God calls us to be beautiful, to make beauty. And he's saying here that happens as we put off our old self, put on our new self put away our old desires, we put on remembering who we are in Jesus, we speak truth to one another, we're members of each other. We're saying, okay, I understand. We belong to each other. We're family here. Saw that throughout our fall series and partnership where there are all these words in the New Testament about partnering with one another. We're on the same team, being members of one another. We're the same body and we're just different, different body parts, right? But the same body with the same goals. We're family. We should love each other. Sometimes family fights with each other, but family should be on the same team. That's the language of the New Testament, that we're trying to head in this same direction. We're trying to make this beautiful music together that represents God's love to the world. So do you see that? The more you understand the gospel truth of who Christ is, then you'll know how to put on the real you. That's this self-language, right? He's saying the real self is made in the image of its creator. We're made to look like God. So the more you understand what Christ has done for you, the more you can be the real you. Don't listen to the voices that say, no, that's not authentic. That's not the real you. Indulge yourself. Well, no, that leads to death. The more we get to know the great I am of the scripture, the more we actually know who I am, right? The more you understand who you're made to be. That's the real you. You're made to be renewed in the image of your creator. So trust that God loves you. Trust that he cares more about your joy than you do. I want to finish by just coming back around to Pinocchio. It's a, it's a great movie, as I said earlier. It's kind of scary for little kids, actually, but it's a classic story. And in this story, we see how the law is just not enough to change Pinocchio. And there's this magical promise that's given to him that's, I'll summarize, I'll paraphrase. Basically, if, if you do what's right, if you become awesome and brave and truthful, then you'll become a real boy, right? He's a puppet that wants to become a real boy. And it seems like that's what happens in the story. Because in the end, he sacrificially loves his father and helps rescue his father who's in trouble. And he dies in the process, it appears. But then the the fairy magic makes him a real boy because he gave himself in love and service to others, right? So it appears in that story from just a cursory reading of the story, just a cursory watching of the story, that by Pinocchio being a really good guy, He becomes his true self. But what's interesting is when you step back from the story, you recognize that you know what put Pinocchio on that path to self-sacrifice and love? It was his father's love. 
It was the father's love for Pinocchio that grabbed hold of his heart, that changed him, that made him the kind of person that would love others. And that's what made him become a real self, a real boy. And we see that as well in the gospel. We can't become the real us on our own. But the beauty is we've got, a, we've got a Heavenly Father who loves us. Scripture says His love preceded us cleaning up our act. He came to us first, and so we respond in love, saying, okay, I, I trust you. I believe that you love me. And then we begin pursuing that love. We give ourselves over to Him. We trust Him. I want to call you, as I call myself, to, to trust Him again. Trust that He's good. Trust that He loves you. As you respond to him in faith, he will transform you. He'll make you into a truth teller and a truth lover, which is what maturity really is. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that uh, you are setting us free and have set us free in Christ. I pray that you would teach us what that looks like to live on a daily basis, throwing off the old and putting on the new. Help us to, to cast aside our our old habits, our old trusts, uh, the old courtrooms that we valued more than you and help us to see you as the great judge that judges all sin. We can't hide from you, but also the great sacrificer who took our sins upon yourself, who died for us, who took our place and gives us your righteousness. We're loved because of what you did for us. You took our sin and you give us your perfection. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.